Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Najwa, a postdoctoral scholar in the Society of Fellows at Boston University and your host today. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Charlotte Karam Albrecht, an Associate Professor of American Culture and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, where she's also a core faculty member for the Arab and Muslim American Studies Program and affiliated faculty for the Center for Middle Eastern and North African Studies. We will be discussing her new book, Possible Histories, Arab Americans and the Queer Ecology of Peddling, published by the University of California Press in February 2023. With simultaneous breath, rigor, and even a bit of scandal, it examines the Syrian peddling economy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries United States, providing archival, cultural, and speculative histories of sexuality within Arab American racial formations. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your wonderful work with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me to be here. Of course. I'm really excited for this conversation. So let's dive right let's dive right in. Okay. Uh, this book starts with a rumor, uh, specifically gossip pertaining to your great grandfather's sexuality, which you tell us shaped some of the inquiries that would forge your research for this project. So given possible histories emerges from and really makes both uh, visible and methodological your own positionality as a historian with particular investments in queer Arab American archives, I'd love to start this discussion with your journey. So may I ask you to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a bit about the, the path that brought you to this project? Yeah, of course. So um, my interest in this project initially came from an interest in my own family history. And I thought of it as a quote unquote personal interest that was Mm -hmm. separate from um, my academic and scholarly interests. And when I started in graduate school, I was in a feminist studies program. Um, I sort of came to a head around this. So just for a bit of context for folks who haven't uh, read the book or aren't familiar with it, I'm a fourth generation Lebanese American on my mother's side. Um, I'm also queer. And um 
I was an undergraduate women's and gender studies major and then did feminist studies. So I knew I was interested in gender and sexuality and I was always interested in race, you know, whiteness, anti-blackness. And then there was this, this kind of like conundrum for me about where do Arabs fit in this? Because I didn't know. Um, I had maybe my own personal experience and some thoughts about family, but I didn't even know that there was a field of Arab American studies that existed. And I didn't even really have a sense that my own family's story was embedded in a larger, you know, transnational history of, um, migration and affiliation and kinship and labor and so on, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until um, I was in graduate school and a couple of people uh, really encouraged me to pursue it as a serious kind of scholarly inquiry that things started to shift. And one of those people, you know, actually knew of Sarah Gualtieri's work and introduced me to um, her work. um, And you know, that really gave me a framework for, you know, questions that I might want to ask, right? Mm -hmm. What, what kind of project might this look like coming out of feminist studies, coming out of queer studies? But initially I was pretty focused on race, not as separate from sexuality and gender, but I just didn't know how it would look in the project. I was just really preoccupied with trying to understand um, how Arabs, how this particular set of Arabs Um, Syrians, as they were called at the time from the Levant, were positioned and were positioning themselves in the landscape of U.S. racial norms, white supremacy, and Um, Mm anti-Blackness. And it wasn't until I started to think about the labor of peddling and the figure of the peddler that I started to see where sexuality especially came into play. Mm -hmm. I could always sort of see gender, but I really wasn't sure um, initially how I wanted to articulate the interest in sexuality and how I could articulate where sexuality was in the archives that I was looking at. So Mm -hmm. it it took a lot of sort of turns um, to get to that place. Um, Also, initially, I was you know, because I was coming from this place of feminist epistemology, thinking about your own position and your own relationship to research and and the things Mm -hmm. that you study. um, Initially, I was really focused on the self and studying my own family. Um, And it didn't take long for me to change course because, um, I mean, for one, it's just can be very messy and very emotionally taxing. Um, And I also wanted to tell a story that wasn't just about my family or me, because it's not, it's, there's not one person or one family that's going to be representative of a history anyway. So, but there were, there were a couple of kind of um, flashpoints in my family's history that still provided this like really important entry into the work that I kept um, mm-hmm. and included. And one of those is the, the preface, which I know we'll talk about a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to return to this question about positionality in a bit, because I think your mm-hmm. book is a really gorgeous demonstration of how we can and perhaps should be thinking about our own uh, orientation to uh, mm-hmm. to our subject matter. Uh, but let's sort of lay out the architecture of the book a bit more mm-hmm. for our listeners. Um, so you, you give us really sort of rich analyses, archives, and theories, uh, but at its core, this book, this book argues for the centrality of sexuality to understanding race and particularly early Arab racialization in the U.S. 
So you use, as you said, the figure and social economy of the peddler as both example of and perhaps even constitutive to the gender sexual racialization of Arabs in the U.S. Uh, So for listeners who may be unaware of Arab American history, why focus on the figure of the Syrian peddler and how does the peddler make visible gender and sexuality uh, as lived and, and lasting modalities for the racialization of Arab Americans? Yeah, so um, before I explain, um, answer the, that, that part of the question, I just want to explain like who peddlers were and what they did for mm-hmm. people who might be unfamiliar. Um, they were essentially traveling salespeople. Mm-hmm. Um, peddlers could be stationed with a cart in an urban area and move around um, not very much throughout the day. They could be um, someone who leaves in the morning and goes to the outskirts of a city and comes back at night. They could be someone that travels into more rural areas and is gone for weeks or months at a time. So there's a lot of different types of peddlers, uh, Mm -hmm. but it was a really quick way for Syrian immigrants to um, find work and start making money quickly. You didn't need to know much English. There was already uh, there quickly. There was like a network of Syrians and especially importers that were setting up Syrians with packs and with goods to sell. Um, and and um, connecting them with other people who peddled, peddled that would help them with routes and things like this, right? So mm-hmm. it was like, you know, a, a pretty easy network um, and an employment structure for people to tap into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be really difficult work. Um, some people did not make much money and others uh, made you know, money fairly quickly that they were able to send home or Mm -hmm. use for their own purposes in the United States. So, but the reasons that I ended up focusing on the peddler, there's a few of them. So the first is because I noticed that there was just such prominence of the figure of the peddler and of stories of peddling Mm -hmm. in Arab American history, both in sort of community colloquial tellings of that history and in in formal and more scholarly narratives. Um, So there were connections to popular knowledge. There was connections pretty explicitly to gender and class because most of those uh, stories were of men who peddled. Um, Most of those stories were about a kind of um, narrative of accessing wealth um, Mm. pretty quickly. Um, And then another reason is because the encounters that Syrian peddlers had with non-Arab Americans as customers, they were, you know, highlighting these kind of racial differences and Orientalist fantasies that existed about Syrian peddlers. And they also highlighted the, the just the range of experiences that Syrians could have with regard to race in the United States. Um, there were, you know, stories popular in, in popular culture that I talk about in the first chapter, especially about Syrian men that really mm-hmm. uh, discussed these kinds of sexualized both fantasies and fears about Syrian men as peddlers um, that you know, seemed to me to be doing a kind of work about this really small group of people that there wasn't necessarily a kind of like looming, um, you know, image in the national imaginary of Arabs as a racial type. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a lot of racial work being done. And that racial work was really heavily intertwined with ideas about sexuality and gender. And I saw that most visibly through the figure of the peddler. Mm. Um, 
And there are a couple, uh, a couple more things. I mean, one is that the work of peddling was inherently a work of mobility, of transience. And throughout the period that I'm looking at, there you know, were established links between mobility and transience and non-normative sexuality. So just to you know, highlight other folks who've done a lot of work on this, Margot Kennedy's, Kennedy's book, The Straight State, Nyan Shah's book, uh, Stranger Intimacies, both highlighting, t- discussing in different ways, relationships between transience and sexuality and race. Um, and, you know, it, it also helped to, for me to understand the differences and how um, that sort of shadow of non-normativity was cast on women versus men, right? For men, it was really about a kind of quote unquote, you know, deviant sexuality links with homoeroticism and homosexuality Mm -hmm. and um, the implications for being racialized as non-white. And for women, it was especially also about being um, racialized as non-white, but for women, especially, it was about a kind of deviant heterosexuality, right? Links with sex work and things like that. Mm -hmm. So this was another reason that site, I think, was particularly rich for me to explore this. And the final one was, uh, was more explicitly about uh, my interest in in queer studies and in methods is that um, I saw this as a place where um, there were possibilities opened up to imagine queer connections and intimacies beyond what archival collections have recorded, right? Because peddlers, mm-hmm. especially peddlers who were going long distance, going you know away for more than a day at a time, and were having to sleep away from home there was a separation from their families and their communities and the sites where there may have been the most kind of like policing or the most kind of um, sense of, um, you know, sort of stakes or tension around gender and sexuality in the United States for them as an immigrant community. Um, Mm -hmm. And peddling also increased women's economic autonomy Right, mm-hmm. which might have had, um, you know, other, which did have other implications for um, women's both gender and sexuality in the United States. So mm-hmm. I saw sort of a lot of different areas for analysis in this um, in this site of inquiry, and for thinking about like what kind of method I wanted to do and what did I want to say about, you know, queerness in Arab American history. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to move on to, to that point. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I have to add, for, particularly for, for those of us who are, are teachers and looking to fill our ethnic studies syllabi, there's, there's a very sort of useful archive and analyses of the sexual politics of, of U.S. sort of American Orientalism, mm-hmm. which, uh, as we know, manifests quite distinctly from European formations of Orientalism. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so thank you for laying that out for us. And um, so let's uh, let's break down um, one of these kinds of rich theoretical apparatuses that you've introduced. Um, so you conceptualize the queer ecology of peddling uh, very capaciously. So it's a, a multi-skilled and interconnected labor structure, uh, a simultaneously transient and intimate social world, um, a gendered sexual and racial system, uh, and a historical reading practice. 
Um, so I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to touch on each of these um, facets throughout the conversation, but uh, do you mind broadly introducing the concept uh, to our listeners? Uh, and how does a queer ecological approach to peddling shift the historical narrative? So, so both popular and disciplinary approaches, mm -hmm. um, as you've started talking about, uh, to the Syrian peddler in U.S. history. Yeah, I, I mean, most broadly, um, the queer ecology of Syrian peddling allows me to name this kind of multivalent function that peddling takes in the project. So mm -hmm. um, uh, thinking about peddling as a queer ecology, it is all, it's a way to expand the understanding of the labor involved in the peddling economy. So traditionally, mm -hmm. peddling is not talked about as an economy it's talked about something that an individual person does that one peddler or especially with um, the advent of Elixir Nass work, excuse me. <clears throat> um, the economy of peddling is about a, su a supplier, right. And the peddlers who go out. And what I noticed in looking through these archives is that peddling was sustained, not just by a supplier, not just by, you know, fe fellow peddlers where you'd, you know, split up routes or travel together for safety uh, or things like that. But by all these other um, economic um, um, activities mm -hmm. that were particularly undertaken by women that were really sustaining the whole endeavor and making it profitable for the community. So one of those things was just that um, some of the things that peddlers were selling were things made by Syrian women in their homes, right? Like mm. embroidered, you know, dust caps and pillowcases and things like that, that were not necessarily being done in a factory. Some of them were just doing them on their own home industries as they would be called. Right. Um, and this was something that Syrian women could do and still do all these other forms of domestic and reproductive labor that they were expected to do in the home. Um, Another form of labor that I saw again and again in the archive was um, the operation of boarding houses where Syrian peddlers were staying. And sometimes those were operated and run by women as well. Um, and then finally, just the, the domestic labor of caring for other people in the family and the community, especially children and older folks who were going to be at home when peddlers left. Right. Mm -hmm. So and this is regardless of wh whether or not the peddler, the gender of the peddler who left. Right. All that labor still had to be done mm -hmm. um, at home. Those things had to be made for peddlers to sell and peddlers needed places to stay, um, especially, you know, there are peddlers that would that would basically come to after like a week, come to another major place where they would stay in a boarding, a boarding home, like on the weekend. Right. Mm -hmm. So it expands our understanding of the labor involved and highlights the um, significance of women's contributions to this economy. Um, I talk about it as a queer analytic because it also um, allows for an excavation of the raced, gendered, sexual, and class implications of the transactional nature of peddling. I've talked a little bit about that, but just the, the kinds of exchanges between peddlers and customers that came up, the fraught nature of those exchanges, um, the potential for violence in those exchanges, some of that which was actualized, which I do discuss in the book as well. 
Um, the, you know, similarly, the race, gendered, sexual, and class implications of the production mm -hmm. and transmission of knowledge about mm -hmm. Arab American pasts. So because the, the project has both thematic and methodological interventions, the queer ecology of peddling is a framework that is flexible enough to encompass both of those things, right? So thinking about what's happening in the history itself, um, what new ways do we need to be thinking about this history? What have we maybe not seen before when we've looked at peddling or looked at Arab American history writ large? And also, how have we produced knowledge about this history? What have those narratives been? What is the the kind of like, you know, meta um, knowledge about that history that's mm. that we're we've gotten from other, you know, stories that have been told about this? And particularly, what are the racial and sexual implications of that? So, you know, what I say in the book is that, um, you know, I say I'm peddling a different history, leaning on the possibility of, uh, on the rubric of possibility to center sexuality and gender without the assumption or expectation of heteronormativity. My use of the queer ecology of peddling as an analytic uncovers a history of Arab American engagements with and investments in whiteness that are simultaneously engagements with and investments in heteronormative sexual politics. So that's really the, the sort of crux of what I wanted to do is to show all of these moments where we can see resistance to whiteness or an investment in whiteness or an attempt mm -hmm. to, to sort of claim whiteness or be claimed by whiteness, there's always a sexual, a heteronormative sexual politics that's sort of looming there, right? That's um, either being threatened by that or that has to be instrumentalized in order to gain that kind of access. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So thinking about um, where you just ended the politics of whiteness in relationship to Arab racialization. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in, in many ways, this book is about sort of the making of Arab Americans and um, uh, Arab racialization is very popularly theorized as a kind of liminal category in mm -hmm. U.S. ethnic studies. Um, so uh, characterized, for instance, as uh, in between white and black or as conditionally white or at times honorary white. Mm -hmm. uh, but how Arabs were racially governed and socialized was not only very muddied, but also very situated in relation to religion, class, region, uh, etc. Uh, so through the kind of mobile peddling economy, your analyses reveal how these nuances emerge, particularly across U.S. regions. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is a particularly exciting contribution of your book, that you're archives take us from the so-called frontier West where settler colonial nation building itself, a sexual and racial project is expanding uh, and in which Arabs are variously participating. Mm -hmm. um, so you describe peddlers as, as quote, threatening to white settler heteronormativity, which echoes uh, what you just shared with us before. Mm -hmm. um, and then you take us to the urbanized, socially mobile New England communities of uh, Syrian social reformers who want to discipline peddling themselves. Mm -hmm. So given this kind of breadth, but also uh, specificity of your archives across the U.S., across these kinds of uh, uh, regional politics um, uh, and class politics. Uh, I'd love to think um, spatially about race and sexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what does the queer ecology of peddling reveal about how gendered sexual class and regional politics really shape racial citizenship? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it reveals how unstable Arab American racial citizenship has been and continues to be. Mm -hmm. 
you know, one of the things that's helpful looking at a site like Pedling, and it's not, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't focus on one region. I sort of took examples from all over the place. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it contextualizes this kind of variation that characterizes early Arab American racialization. So not just meaning that, you know, it was in between Mm -hmm. um, white and non-white, right? Or the honorary whiteness or these other, I think, very useful and still very accurate um, concepts that have been mm -hmm. theorized, but that the racialization was dependent on the regional context, um, dependent on the particular situation in which Assyrian was navigating U.S. racial no norms, dependent on, you know, religious context and dynamics, all of these different things and that it could change, right? It could mm -hmm. not just changing across Syrians and individuals, but or changing across geographies or regions, but changing for a single person depending on those different kinds of contexts. So for instance, in the book, um, I discussed the example of this one Syrian man who was peddling, who's relatively new to the country. And this is all based on news articles, right? So we have to sort of think about the sensationalism of that too. Mm -hmm. But one of his customers um, apparently accused him of sexually assaulting her, right? Mm -hmm. and there's not details about what occurred or what was alleged, um, but the, the white locals in this particular county in Oklahoma where this took place they were angry and the police there were afraid that the, the Syrian peddler would be lynched. So the police moved him to another county where he had relatives so that he would be safer. So in this one star story, you have both this kind of, you know, clear, like non-white racialization mm -hmm. in which um, there's this, uh, especially in the narrative about the story, right? This kind of fear of uh, a kind of, you know, danger, dangerous sexual um, predator. Mm -hmm. And in which this person is also benefiting from this protection of white supremacy, white supremacy, where you have these police saying, no, this is someone we should protect. Maybe we know his relatives over here, right? Maybe mm -hmm. there's people we trust already. And so we're going to protect him and move him some other place. So many things that, you know, uh, many other folks would not have that kind of protection. Right. Mm -hmm. So even in one place, it could vary, I think, that much as well. But you have, you know, in, in the instance of, um, you know, the kind of what I think you called nation building, settler colonial nation building um, in these areas where, um, you know, the U.S. was actively acquiring and stealing and developing native lands and getting uh, especially white settlers to move to them you know mm -hmm. peddlers were really useful for settlers who were moving there um, but these links between transients um, and sexual non-normativity and the ideas about race within them they weren't something that were desired for a citizen of those territories, right? So for mm -hmm. someone to be assimilated into that kind of context, they needed to stop peddling, mm -hmm. right? And you see a very different context, but a similar kind of impulse in the Northeast um, in these social work, social welfare contexts where um, for women, especially to become proper women, to be understood as proper women, which was to be understood as a white woman, mm -hmm. um, they needed to stop peddling, right? They needed to cease labor 
um, outside the home. They needed to cease labor that was paid inside the home. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's this kind of contradiction in how peddling has been, uh, you know, framed as this kind of like pioneering activity that's so, you know, emblematic of this kind of romanticized early era of American history, where it was, you know, something that we could sort of look back on and see, oh, that must have been exciting. And they were just, you know, like, staking out on their own and making something of themselves. And but in order to do, in order to sort of complete that kind of, um, you know, really capitalist, white supremacist, heteronormative, Mm -hmm. narrative of mobility, right? They had to stop, right? It had to become something else. Um, and that's not really emphasized, right? It's it's like those things are, are, are sort of uh, recast as emblematic of peddling itself, right? It's mm -hmm. entrepreneurial and it's capitalistic and it's, you know, a feature of really being um, made for America, right? In all of these mm -hmm. ways. But at the time, that's not actually how it was seen by many people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the the other thing to think about is that we have so many examples in Arab American history of Syrians who seem to be accepted by white people or to, like, quote unquote, become white themselves mm -hmm. um, or all these sort of stories about relationships to whiteness um, and relationships to white privilege. And because of how the labor and the interactions and discourse surrounding peddling relied on, on those kinds of ideas that interwove class, religion, gender, sexuality, race, um, I think, you know, looking at this queer ecology of peddling, it allows for more explicit highlighting of how any one Syrian's ability to access whiteness depended heavily on white American notions of heteronormativity, right? Mm -hmm. And specifically American notions of the, the sexual normativity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's both in the, the realm of symbolic or cultural citizenship, but mm -hmm. also thinking about legal citizenship the you know slew of racial prerequisite cases that that happened in the early mm -hmm. um, 20th century, um, where immigrants from the Asian continent argue that they should be considered white in order to gain naturalization, and mm -hmm. um, those arguments really relied on um, familial, reproductive, and as a result, sexual normativity. Mm -hmm to shore up evidence of the petitioner's whiteness. So there was like, you know, there was not one without the other. They went hand in hand. And I think that's something that I really tried to demonstrate in the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, uh, I appreciate also that um, so many of your analyses also um, uh, really productively place Arab American studies in conversation with both settler colonial and indigenous studies. Mm-hmm. Um, um, particularly in this way in which you've discussed the kind of route from the transient to the settler as being, uh, uh, I think, a racial and a sexual one, as mm-hmm. you put it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so let's move uh, to uh, your archives a, a bit more, uh, which is uh, also the subject of a really powerful kind of meta narrative about Arab American historiography within your analysis. Um, or I, I think, uh, as you put it earlier, the kind of meta knowledges of, uh, of these histories. Um, so you're largely drawing from the research and archives of one prominent Arab American scholar, Alexanaf, uh, while using the kind of political conditions and motivations of that archive uh, to critique the historical assumptions of Arab American studies. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the archival politics of Arab American history uh, and how archives themselves reflect and in some cases suppress the politics of race and sexuality? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Yeah, Alixa Naf, um, for those not familiar with her, was a um, historian and um, did all of these oral histories with second, first and second generation Syrian Americans, mm-hmm. first in the 1960s and then again in the 1980s. And she had other projects that she did as well. And out of that came her book, Becoming American, um, The Early Arab Immigrant Experience, where she focuses on peddling. And, you know, is really, I think the person that has just, you know, she's just, she just did this really rich social history um, of peddling. Um, And in that process, all of these people donated family papers, documents, photos, artifacts, all of these things. So she just, you know, has this had this um, huge collection that she um, that's now at the Smithsonian, right? And so there's so many things about this period of Arab American history and about peddling in particular there. So it's hard not to write. I don't think you can really write about peddling and the peddling economy and not contend with both the archive that she helped to shape mm. and her scholarship that really produced the real, the, you know, pretty much the like singular narrative that we've had about the significance of peddling in the, this sort of early Arab immigrant experience, as she calls it, and its relationship to um, assimilation that she writes mm-hmm. about, right? So I think, you know, one of the things that I noticed is that, um, there were moments in which sexuality seemed to be present, but not visible. Like there might mm-hmm. be an anecdote about um, some kind of misunderstanding that was about a kind of like some, you know, uh, a sexual joke that wasn't meant to be sexual, but somebody else took it as sexual. Right. Um, and it would be in the archive. It might be in her book but there wasn't really any kind of exploration of the significance of that other than, oh, this is a cultural misunderstanding, right? Mm. Um, and she was really interested in gender and really interested in the 
perspectives of women. Mm-hmm. And I think the perspectives of people who were single um, and unmarried, um, but you know, the, it didn't extend to any kind of like curiosity about, about sexuality um, mm. to a large extent. And it's both something that I tried to take seriously as like, what are the limits of this? What does this do? What does this produce in terms of the stories that we can tell and the knowledge that we have from this archive? And um, how can I not expect various things of someone that I, I don't know, right? And I, I have a different research agenda. Mm-hmm. And I'm also incredibly indebted to, both for her scholarship and for the archive itself. So that was sort of like the, the like container for it all. And then I was thinking about how, and you know, other people who have written about this, um, I especially really like the way Emma Perez writes about this, uh, about um, ethnic histories, writing their, you know, writing the ethnic history to, to appeal to sameness to the Mm. white audience. And so you can see that happening in both the things that people deem as being important or as representative of them or their families that they want to um, collect. This maybe has happened with people who've curated and collected items of, you know, Mm. what things that they think should be included and, and shouldn't. Um, And that people especially in the time that NAF was doing these oral histories, um, the late 60s, right, and the 1980s, that people were very aware of this kind of the, the rise of this really racist image of the Arab and mm. the Muslim and the, the U.S. national imaginary. And so the the desire to counter that with telling a a history, right? Telling a a historical narrative or um, giving things that we're going to sort of document the history are always going to be involved in that. And because Mm -hmm. we know that like, this is, this is related to white supremacy and Orientalism and sexuality Mm -hmm. and gender so intimately intertwined with that. As a result, one of the things you get is this kind of, you know, excising of, gender and sexual non-normativity so Mm -hmm. um this is you know especially early on i think i also just felt really angry about it honestly as like a queer arab american to say i know that this is not all we have right Mm -hmm. um but i had to really think about why this is way this is how things were being Mm-hmm. constructed right and you can really see it and how peddling was discussed in um in in print media in the u.s by especially by non-arab sources right mm-hmm. where they're just all of these ideas about this kind of dangerous but also seductive um exotic figure the figure selling you know, these exotic goods, but also sort of selling themselves and selling himself, right? Mm. Um, And ideas that were circulating about women peddlers because, you know, peddlers in other communities were not women, Mm. um, that people were really trying to counteract this, these things as like, you know, as discourses that really had material harm attached to them for their communities. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. So I, I'd love to continue with um, this question of history and also sort of what um, mm-hmm. the kind of limits and possibilities of archives, as well as your own kind of encounter uh, with the archive. Um, your So your analysis is, is certainly an interdisciplinary one from archival history to cultural studies. Um, but uh, perhaps we can talk about one or two of your methods that are maybe less customary in mm-hmm. history, uh, but that you compellingly insist on within the book. Uh, drawing from queer, Black, and post-colonial approaches uh, to history. So one which we touched on at the beginning of the conversation is, is the work of gossip. So how, how might mm-hmm. gossip generate a method? Uh, and second, and, and possibly in relation, can you discuss what you call historical grounded imaginaries um, in narrating possible Arab American histories? Yeah. So... Um... One of the kernels to the project is the one that starts the book in the preface Mm -hmm. um, is this gossip that has surrounded my late um, great-grandfather's life. He was rumored to be queer. um, And the the rumor is that, you know, long before my time, supposedly he was beat up for cruising for sex Mm -hmm. with men. And the rumor circulates in my family, but especially to queer family members, like when they first Mm -hmm. sort of disclosed to other people that they're queer. That is what happened to me. That's what's happened to um, a couple other family members that I know of. And, you know, just generations afterward, it still Mm -hmm. is um, knowledge that circulates. It's also knowledge that people outside of the family have Mm -hmm. um, and has circulated as a form of, as like a kind of, you know, negative mark against the family right and there's mm-hmm. people that that you know have a lot of shame about about it because of the ways that it's been um weaponized against uh family members so mm-hmm. you know i tried to verify whether or not this was true and what actually happened i wasn't able to but despite that i knew that there was this historical significance to the rumor itself so um, and be- probably because I uh, was not trained in a history department, I didn't feel limited to specific methodological boundaries. And, you know, I teach in Arab American studies. I have a lot of Arab American students at my university and in my classes. Mm-hmm. And gossip continues to be a very powerful mechanism that communicates what's permissible with regard mm-hmm. to gender and sexuality in Arab American communities, right? So there's something... Um, really important there. So I decided to take gossip seriously um, as a historical fact and, a, and as a historical process. And I found it show up in other places as I was doing archival research. So um, I, I saw it show up in multiple places in case records of the Syrian American social worker who mm. noted that women, Syrian women that she was working with, feared the gossip of other Syrians. This happened, especially with a woman who'd had a child out of wedlock. And mm-hmm. when she saw a Syrian woman come in, the social worker come into the hospital room, she just freaked out, right? She's mm. like, everybody's going to know. Um, and I saw it come up in the pages of Arab American periodicals where editors and community members implied that Syrian women peddlers were dishonorable and were linked with sex work. Mm. So it's, you know, it, it was circulating as a kind of disciplinary mechanism, um, something that I ended up calling a form of community self-policing, particularly related to gender and sexuality, especially affecting women. 
So the content of gossip doesn't have to be factual for the Mm -hmm. lessons and the disciplinary nature of it to be historically meaningful. Um, And that's something that I tried to focus on. And I also wanted to think about how it, you know, becomes analytically, pedagogically, pedagogically, um, and maybe culturally useful for people and generations later, right? So thinking about myself specifically, this is one of the ways where I think about my own relationship to the research. And then the link to what I call historical grounded imagining is also related to sexuality and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I want to say first that, you know, I, I sort of call this like collection of, of um, um, speculative, historical, historicist, really, methods. Um, I just call it this because I need it. I need to name it something, but it is not original to me in any way, right? So I'm, you know, especially influenced by Saidia Hartman's work um, and also um, um, Emma Perez's work um, around this, but thinking about the kinds of the violence done by um, uh, particularly state-produced records and the Mm. limitations of that for the the kind of historical knowledge we have. So, you know, as I said uh, earlier, because archival collections are shaped by what people donate um, and they're often, you know, people are donating things to reflect themselves, their families, their communities in ways that they think are respectable. And this is, you know, often cutting out gender and sexual non-normativity from our collective historical records. And we have all of these records that are produced by the state there. And, mm-hmm. and those records are really, you know, formed by heteronormativity and white supremacy. We get you know, records of marital status, heteroreproductive familial relations, race, Mm. and so on, right? So to take these things as sort of mere facts, right, really unremarkable, uninteresting, and they're just facts, doing that really reinscribes these historical subjects in, um, you know, ways of being and thinking of themselves that may not have been accurate to their experiences, Um, And I don't think that the alternative is to say, well, we can't explore anything else because we don't know. We can't verify it in the same way that we would verify that someone was married, right? Mm -hmm. Or when they, when they were born, which by the way, when they were born, that's also something that can be um, Mm -hmm. quite murky, right? So, you know, I, I knew that that didn't mean that, that this kind of sexual and gender diversity, the possibilities that did not exist in the history. And Mm -hmm. I think confining ourselves to what's documented in archival collections, what's produced by the state, it limits that history to hetero and cisnormativity. And as a result, it limits it, it's confining it to white supremacist um, ontological structures as well. Mm -hmm. So what I do in the book is I intentionally imagine moments or scenarios that like push past the recorded archive to open up the possibility for gender transgression, for homosocial intimacy, and for homoerotic desire. Uh, I think homosociality ends up being sort of a one that maybe many people are um, can be comfortable with, as mm-hmm. long as we don't take it into desire 
sexual mm. desire and intimacy, right? So particularly in the relationships between those who labored in the peddling economy, that's something that I want to highlight. And I'm not um, actually sort of pushing to claim particular historical mm-hmm. subjects as, you know, gay or lesbian or queer or some, this sort of, um, you know, particular way that we know today to link sexual identity um, with sexual desire and sexual activity. Mm. Um, because I, I, you know, I also think that there can be problems with that, but I, I, I want it to be clear that I don't know mm-hmm. and that the not knowing is not a reason not to talk about it, but also that we see when someone was married, that actually doesn't tell us anything about how they understood themselves, you know, who they were, what their intimate life was like, what the the life of their desire was like in the world. We don't actually know that from a marriage record or the births of children. So I want, I I both want to open up this possibility for um, these kinds of queer histories and possibilities um, and to, to destabilize this assumption of heteronormativity, just permeating every, all of these different facets of historical mm. actors that, that we are probably taking for granted, many of us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, uh, that was beautiful. I'm, I, I just reading your work and also folks like, like Hartman that you mentioned, I, I, I feel like you also seem to be proposing humility as, as not only a particular kind of ethic within the academy um, and one that's, you know, maybe not encouraged by the kind of hegemonic idealization mm-hmm. of, the, of the distant or otherwise objective. And I'm like using mega air quotes for objective yeah. academic, uh, but also thinking about humility methodologically um, mm-hmm. in terms of, um, as you say, what we can know, what we can't know. Um, and also that historically produced um, erasures, whether uh, violently produced or otherwise, don't simply indicate um, uh, historical absence, but mm-hmm. rather that we should be like sort of carefully, uh, uh, very carefully, but also like caringly open, mm-hmm. um, as you say, to many historical possibilities. So um, I think your, your care and your carefulness really does emerge. And um, I would direct mm-hmm. readers to the really important analyses of historical praxis that you provide, like including both the kind of deployments and critiques of recovery work within ethnic studies um, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, scavenger work within queer studies. Thank you for that. That's really, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Sure, it was something you. that I really, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I have to be open to the possibility that I get things wrong, mm-hmm. that there's implications of the method that mm-hmm. I may not have been aware of that I might be uncomfortable with, or might, you know, regret later on. But I did try to just, I, I did try to do it with care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm, it shows. So uh, I, I guess related uh, to that point um, uh, about sort of skirting with the disciplinarity, I, I, I'd love to talk next about the relationship of your research to its fields. Um, so in addition to working within and against history's disciplinarity, uh, you're also sort of reckoning with the margins of both Arab American studies and gender and sexuality studies. Uh, so, for instance, I, I really appreciated a moment in the book when you discuss how uh, Arab and Swana regions and communities are considered rather um, uninteresting or belated subjects of queer theory. 
Um, so I feel this very much in relation to working on, on Muslims in Islam um, uh, in both queer and feminist critique in the, in the global north, where they're either sort of considered these, again, these delayed subjects of queer and feminist theory, or they're represented sort of very statically in a kind of binary of imperialized subjects of, of, of modern Western heteronormativity versus um, authentic subjects of queer sexual past. So you remind us how this kind of mar marginalization speaks to queer theory's own investments in liberal modernity. So, um, and, and you're obviously thinking quite a bit with other um, uh, thinkers of, of queer theory from post-colonial um, and Asian American traditions. Um, so broadly, I'd, I'd love you to, um, I, I'd love to invite you to talk about how your book and scholarly investment sort of rethinks the, the Arab in queer studies. Um, and there's obviously a long genealogy of the Arab in queer studies and also rethinks the queer in Arab American studies. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the idea of a particular site geopolitically or subject being uninteresting or belated subjects. Um, uh, I was really moved by Kigurl Macharia's work I'm citing there in relation mm -hmm. to um, queer studies, queer theory, and the African continent. And it mm -hmm. does seem to me that this is what we're currently experiencing, both with, um, with regard to Muslim, Muslims and Islam, um, as you mentioned, and also Arabs and Arab Americans, there is a kind of, even if unintentional, I think, kind of developmental model in mm. queer studies. Um, and, uh, you know, as it's anchored in uh, North America and Europe, and mm. I think particularly in the United States, um, that is linked to these ideas about as you say, investments in modernity, right? Mm -hmm. That, um, and as a result, there there becomes this kind of really narrow way to even be able to see a queer site, right? Mm -hmm. Or a queer figure that's not just worthy of scholarship, but something that becomes, um interesting beyond this kind of parochial understanding of like, um, you know, oh, this is another example of this, mm -hmm. right? In just this one, this one spot, this is the Arab example. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that that was probably a reason why I did not know how sexuality was going to be in the project for a long time, quite frankly. I mean, if we look at like queer of color critique, um, scholars within queer of color critique have done a ton of work to challenge the whiteness of the, the queer, the, the subject in queer studies and queer theory in particular. Right. Um, and I still think that there's other kinds of, um, ideas about development and modernity that that uh, unintentionally has has seeped into some areas of queer of color critique, but in mm -hmm. others, I think that there's also like uh, a real interest in seeing okay, what kind of uh, additional assumptions or structures are being built in this new analysis? Where are we not looking, or where are we not thinking? Um, so I do, I still see queer of color critique as like the, the really expansive site, um, of possibility for these kinds of, 
of conversations, even if there it doesn't feel like there's really um, much of a investment or awareness mm. in um, Arab and uh, Muslim sites and and subjects yet. I still think that mm. the frameworks are that there that will allow for a lot, but um, you know maybe not without challenges or limitations that need to be. Um, dealt with right Mm -hmm. um but but to me there's so there's this thing it's it's not like they're really separate this kind of queer studies um arab american studies paradigms that i'm trying to think about um in arab american studies i think that what we have in the field is a foundation of feminist scholarship um, and a foundation mm-hmm. of uh, women scholars who've really kept the eye on women, especially in gender to a certain extent, in terms of um, the knowledge that's been produced. And yet, um, a, a critical interrogation of heterosexuality and heteronormativity has been very hard to come by. And mm-hmm. on top of that, I think that um, in a his- historical or historicist sense, it's been especially mm-hmm. challenging. So I think what you get more often is really a more contemporary focus because of how um, the terms of Orientalism have shifted um, mm-hmm. and the kind of, um, you know, um, civilizational kind of um, uh a paradigm within Orientalism around sexuality and gender has shifted. And of course, now mm-hmm. we have um, homonationalism. And mm-hmm. I, I think it has facilitated more thinking about that. Um, but still, it feels like it's, yes, it's uninteresting, right? Because it, it feels, I think, too, um, in terms of queer studies, it feels like it's outdated, right? Or like we've already mm. moved beyond that and moved past that. And that these sites of the world, these sites, these communities can't provide anything more than um, an example of something that we already know. We've already proven that. Mm. Um, which is something that I really struggled about, uh, struggled with in the book too, of just feeling like, well, we already know that sexuality is implicated in race. All of these other people have already shown that. Um, and really trying to figure out why it's still worth talking about Arabs and Arab Americans. Um, and I think the other thing that this question really reminded me of, and I don't know if this is what you were thinking about with it or not, um, but it, it, there's, there's something about like the economy of interest in which Arab um, American and American Muslim studies circulate that mm-hmm. feel still very much tied to um, the U.S.'s, like in a, in a kind of national imaginary sense, understanding of 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. And so that there's, um, and I really noticed this with my own kind of like going on the job market and seeing jobs come up that there, the, that felt like there was like this moment of interest right? Mm -hmm. Because it felt relevant. Mm -hmm. But the relevance of that, I think, particularly for Arab American studies, has not been sustained, right? That's Mm -hmm. not understood as like something that continues to be relevant. 
um, because I think that it's not seen as something that can be applied to other contexts. So for me, I, you know, I, in graduate school, worked with several people who are Asian American studies scholars and felt Asian American studies frameworks, among other ethnic studies frameworks, had Mm -hmm. a lot to offer me, right? But I, it is rare that I see that happening in reverse. And Mm -hmm. this is not about a kind of, you know, competition of like, nobody returns the favor, right? But I, I see time and time again, that the theories that are produced out of Arab American studies, theories that are produced out of critical uh, Muslim studies are not taken seriously as things that are meaningful and need to be understood outside of those particular communities. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that also has the connection to this kind of uninteresting, belated modernity developmental thing happening within queer studies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm, I'm snapping yeah. <laughs> for our listeners. I could go off on my soapbox. I, uh, I would love to have this conversation for another hour, yeah. but we're, we're closing in on yes. our time. So I'll, I'll, I'll move uh, to our uh, last question, yeah. but I would also just add for North American uh, scholars working in North America, particularly doing queer color critique, uh, your work, um, I'm thinking about sort of my syllabi, teaching ethnic studies, th- teaching, I just taught a class on race, sexuality in the state, mm. um, uh, that thinking outside of the, the, the kind of national model is also important or the kind of productive yeah. model that you give us um, that the, about how the governance and moralization of gender and sexuality are not just situated in relation to the kind of U.S. heteronormative state, mm-hmm. but are also transnational and mobile. And you really sort of follow that kind of mobility. Mm-hmm. So I guess, uh, finally, I, I, uh, I thought we could conclude the discussion by yeah. thinking about the kind of contemporary resonances of this project, which you've mm-hmm. already sort of uh, uh, highlighted. So your book's uh, historicization of Arab American race and sexuality is particularly timely and useful context for contemporary U.S. politics and the so-called culture wars. Um, uh, So you're a professor in Michigan where there's Mm -hmm. recently a lot of media coverage of small communities of Arabs and Muslims uh, mobilizing alongside right-wing white Christians against um, LGBTQ affirming policies, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. though though, though not only um, in relation to public education. So um, while these are obviously um, like particularly situated events, mm-hmm. um, how can Arab American histories complicate or speak to this moment? Um, and I'm posing this question very openly, but I'm, I'm thinking about how your book um, uh, provides us a kind of long historical arc for how state politics, community self-disciplining, and moral panics all intersect toward disciplining race and sexuality, uh, and that this history has long included Arab Americans. Yeah. I mean, I really wish we didn't have to have this question. I It's just been so demoralizing to see this happen, um, mm-hmm. not just in Arab and Muslim communities, but um, in all kinds of communities. Uh, mm-hmm. It is, however, I think important to remind ourselves, remind other people that this is rooted in white Christian nationalism, as you've mentioned, right? That this is this is where this move is coming from, is from these um, these strategies, right? That's rooted in that particular politic. Mm-hmm. I think um, when it comes to talking about, you know, um, gender and sexuality, especially in terms of 
queer and trans issues, non-normativity, et cetera, you know, there is a, a tendency um, among people who are who don't feel directly affected by those issues to believe that it is the um, it is the concern of queer and trans people, right? Um, and so, for in, with regard to this, that it must just be the concern of queer and trans Arabs, right? Mm. But these kinds of politics affect how everyone is shaped in the community, right? So these ideas historically about peddlers being linked to a kind of deviant sexuality were used to malign people who, uh, you know, were not were not peddlers, right? But also um, seem to be in all other regards upstanding normative citizens with regard to gender and sexuality, right? It's not something that stops at the, the you know, in in Arab communities, the the kind of this idea that your sexual and gender non-normativity is going to be a shield for you will only go so far. One, because that's always going to be tied to race. The mm. racialization of Arabs is always going to be tied to this um, idea of uh, sexual non-normativity, whether it be a kind of homoerotic deviance, so-called deviance, right? Mm-hmm. Or a kind of excessively um, oppressive or repressive sexuality um, that we're sort of living under now, right? And that this becomes in in that the Orientalist frameworks that we have, this becomes linked to um, an excessive or exceptional patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and except exceptionally submissive um, um, existence for women, right? Mm-hmm. So the you know it, it's it's sutured together. So the access to normativity, the access to belonging, and in this regard, it's an access to belonging with um, Christian white supremacists who will int- instrumentalize our communities to get to this, you know, whatever it is that they're envisioning, right? Mm -hmm. But they are not envisioning uh, safety for Muslims, safety for Arabs. They're not envisioning self-determination for any of these kinds of communities, right? So to think that this is just, quote unquote, going to affect or harm uh, queer and trans people who supposedly, according to these folks, aren't even a part of our communities or don't um, get to be treated as human or whatever the thinking is, it's really short-sighted um, and it will not, it won't, it won't serve them. I mean, we are, you already see examples of this, of people aligning with these folks then saying, oh, I don't, that feels a little, that feels racist or Islamophobic. I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, incredibly, um alarming to see it happening in this way um and i hope that um enough people i mean there are a lot of people doing work around this Mm -hmm. right and and speaking about these connections and um the trap of falling into this these kinds of frameworks and thinking Right. And so it's just something that we, we have to keep working on and um, both on a national scale and in these smaller community levels. 
Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and that's certainly um, a, a hopeful note <laughs> to, to end on. Uh, the work continues. Um, so Charlotte, thank you so much uh, for this conversation and for your tremendous work. And I encourage um, uh, everyone to find a copy of Possible Histories, which uh, is a gift to so many of our fields. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening.